Good evening and welcome to Good News Conference 2021. We are so excited to have you with us. My name is Kulufe Lokele and I will be your host this evening. Easter is one of the most important weekends in the Christian community. Today is Good Friday and we get to commemorate the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The last thing that Jesus said before dying on the cross is, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He said, tetelestai, which is a Greek word for, it is finished. And he meant, it is finished in the present and it will remain finished in the future. Oh, what a joy to know that it is all finished. And now we are going to spend some time in praise and worship followed by offering message from Mr. Maguarela. Immediately after that, Pastor Byron Chicken, who is the national leader of the Assemblies of God group, will be ministering to us today, looking specifically into the life of Caleb and incorporating that with their annual theme, Build to Last. We do hope that you enjoy the rest of the service.
Greetings, People's Church. It's great to be sharing with you this message of encouragement on this beautiful Good Friday. Hope you're excited just as we all are. Our scripture this morning will be coming from the book of Lamentations. I know it sounds like a, an oxymoron, a word of encouragement and the book of Lamentations because this is one of the saddest books in all of the Bible. This book actually is a spillover from the book of Jeremiah prior to this, where we find Jeremiah really just in anguish and just saddened by the fact that there's this impending doom, there's this impending destruction on his land, on the land of Judah, the the other kingdom, the rest of Israel, has already been 
destroyed. There's just remaining this, this people here in Judah. So when he's penning down the book of Jeremiah, he's really just in turmoil about what is about to happen. Then he continues as if to say, I am not done. He comes back with a sequel in the book of Lamentations. And when it starts off from the very first chapter, he says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations. The one who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. It's, it's very depressing. What you find is just, the words are just heavy. Just really a representation of the turmoil that is within him. But in the midst of this depression, in the midst of this anguish and turmoil, he goes completely 180 in chapter 3. And he says from verse 22 to 24, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He says, it sounds like he's saying, when I look, what my eyes sees around me, the situation is depressing. It's dark. It's grim. It's, it's as if there is no way out. I see no way out. But when I focus on him, there's a testimony that rises up inside of me. My soul testifies that his steadfast love never ceases. When I woke up this morning, his mercies on me were fresh. His faithfulness is not attached to any situation or circumstances. Therefore, I will hope in him. And as a people, we've been through some tough times we, we've been through some horrible times and we don't know if there'll be a part two there'll be a sequel there'll be there'll be a repeat or just an increase of the tough times ahead of us but what we know is this inside of us our souls can testify that our hope is in him our hope is in him there's nothing in him that changes. He has not changed his mind about us. Therefore, our hope cannot be shaken. Our anchor lies in him and it cannot be moved. We continue to be grateful for your faithfulness. Even giving during these challenging times, you have not stopped to give towards this church and we would like to appreciate your giving and your continued faithfulness. And we pray that you will continue to experience His unwavering faithfulness in all areas of your life, in all areas of your families. The banking details will appear on your screen. 
God bless you as you continue to give. Thank you. Hey People's Church, oh, it's such a privilege to be able to share this Easter moment with you. Huge thanks to Pastors Mondli and Kulu for the privilege of sharing this time with you. It's a special time of year, Easter, it really, really is. And I love the theme for your Easter conference and the theme for your church this year, Built to Last, because there is so much these days that's just not built to last, is it? Think about IT, you know, they have something called planned obsolescence. When you buy an IT machine, a computer of any sort, it's planned not to last. They plan it to work for three or four years and then you've got to buy a new one, you know. We think about marriages in our society, you know. People spend more time and money on their wedding than they do on their marriage. 50% uh, of all marriages, including marriages in the church, don't last. And so when I heard your theme, I immediately thought of a brilliant book that I read a number of years ago called Built to Last by Jim Collins. It was published first in 1994. It's a brilliant management book outlining the results of a research project where they explored what it is that leads to enduringly great companies. Well, guess what? Church, you and I can explore from Scripture what it is that in, uh, leads to enduringly great Christ followers, Christ followers that are built to last. But thinking about Built to Last, the, the other thing that I thought about, apart from the book, was my first car. His name was Boris. You know, I, I don't know if you name your cars, but in our family, we've always named our cars. And my first car, his name was Boris. He was a 1984 Ford Cortina, canary yellow. He'd had about four touch-up paint jobs done on him. The back seat was about three meters wide, four-speed, two-liter. But guess what? He was Built to last. You know, some of my friends, they had like the, these cooler cars, like a, like a Golf or a, an Opel Cadet and those sorts of smaller, more cool cars. Half of their cars never lasted. Boris, I think he's still going somewhere. Uh, he has not been retired yet. He was built to last. Talking about this concept about built to last, it's so important that we understand the qualities of what it is that makes us as human beings built to last and as Christ followers what makes us built like what is it within us that creates a Christ follower that's built to last let's start by telling you a story about a man called Chris Burtish a proudly South African story because Chris Burtish is a South African legend you know in 2010 he won the Mavericks big wave surfing competition out in California that is the big daddy of all big wave surfing competitions only 24 people in the whole world are invited. They're invited to ride the biggest waves in the world. Waves that if you wipe out, they can kill you and have killed many people. Well, Chris arrived in California for the Mavericks competition, but his board and his wetsuit didn't. They got lost in the luggage. And so he borrowed a board and he borrowed a wetsuit. But on the day of the competition, he, he didn't start off well. He got caught inside three waves of absolutely monster proportions. He wiped out three times in 60-foot waves on his head. Three wipeouts, 60-foot waves <laughs> on his head. One of those waves was the biggest wave he had ever seen. A 
and he got caught inside of it. His teeth went right through his bottom lip. He traveled 1.2 kilometers underwater in 20 seconds. That's how fast the water was. Well, Chris fortunately got rescued by a jet ski, kind of regained his breath, climbed back on his borrowed board a couple of hours later, and ended up winning the competition, surfing a 60-plus foot wave. Chris was built to last. I mean, three monster waves couldn't take him out. Here's a quick picture of what a 60-foot wave looks like. Chris's victory has become the stuff of surfing legend, and it, it turned actually into a best-selling novel and documentary. Apart from that, though, Chris has won countless other awards too, including the first person to ever paddle unsupported solo by himself between Africa and the Caribbean islands. That's 7,560 kilometers on a paddleboard. Unbelievable story of an unbelievable man. But I love Chris's story because although he got caught inside one of the biggest waves ever, wiped out so badly, yet he stood up and he came back stronger than ever. Chris was built to last. Chris was resilient. I think, I don't know about you, but in 2020 and into this year, 2021, most of us feel like we've been caught inside the biggest wave our generation certainly has ever faced. You see, Chris didn't just make it out, he made it out and won the competition. And so there was something different about Chris. Chris was different. He didn't live like other people did. He was built to last. He thought differently, he spoke differently, and he lived differently. And as we have got caught inside the biggest wave of our generation, I think we can learn a little bit of what it is to be built to last. In other words, you're going to outlast this thing. Not only are you going to outlast this thing, you're going to thrive. Today we're going to take our lessons, not from Chris, uh, yeah, it's a great story. We're going to take our lessons from Scripture. Because there was a man in Scripture who lived a little bit like Chris Burtish did. This guy also thought differently, spoke differently, and lived differently. This guy also was built to last. And together with his good friend and military commander Joshua, these two, literally, these two outlasted everyone in their generation. Everyone else in their generation died except for these two. This guy was sent to check out the land that God had promised to give Israel. He was one of 12 spies sent out to look at the land. Well, 10 of them came back with a report that there was absolutely no way the land could be taken. The people living in the land were giants. The cities were too big. Just couldn't be done. Fear dominated the people around this man that I'm about to tell you about. But he refused to live like that. He refused to live like the culture around him. He was like an ancient version of Chris Burtish, just refused to lie down. The man I'm talking about, his name was Caleb, and he was built to last. We read some of his story in Numbers chapter 14. It says, but my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. This is God speaking. He has remained loyal to me. So I will bring him into the land that he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Church, there are three things I want to focus on with regards to Caleb today. I hope that they give you food for thought, and I hope that they help you and equip you. Here are the three thoughts. Number one, Caleb thought differently. Secondly, he spoke differently. And thirdly, he lived differently. People that are built to last, 
people that are literally going to outlast everyone in their generation, who are going to do things for God that will outlast themselves, who will have significance and purpose that will last well beyond their years here on earth, they do these three things. They think differently, they speak differently, and they live differently. So let's dive into it in Caleb's life and see what we can learn today. You know, we see the crowds thinking, and then we see Caleb's thinking, don't we? So we've got 12 spies. Ten of them come back and go, there's no ways we're taking this land. But two, Caleb and Joshua, they've got a different report. Here it is in Numbers chapter 13. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. Hey, we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Now, that's the people talking. That's the majority. That's the culture. That's 10 of the 12 spires. That's, that's the majority. And here we see Caleb. Check out his response in Numbers 14, just one chapter later. Caleb goes, no, no. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and he'll give it to us. It's a land rich, flowing with milk and honey. Caleb thought differently. Do you see how the culture thought one way? Caleb thought the other. Caleb saw the, uh, the culture saw the size of the obstacles. Caleb saw the size of the opportunity. The culture was thinking about how difficult it was. Caleb was thinking about how incredible the opportunity could be. And as I reflect on his life and as I look at his life, I think there were two keys and they're hidden here in the scripture and we're going to unpack them. There were two keys that enabled them to think differently. There were two reasons why Caleb could think differently. Firstly, Caleb knew the promises of God. So check it out with me. Numbers 13 verse 2. It says, There the Lord said this to Moses and send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel. So you see, God had been promising this land to his people for over 500 years. Caleb knew that. Caleb knew the promises of God. Church, there was a promise embedded into the history of Israel. And that was that God would give this land to the people. Caleb was steeped in his history. He was steeped in the traditional faith. Caleb knew that there was a promise about this land. And so at the moment when he faces the size of the cities and the size of the giants, when the other 10 are looking and going, there's no ways, Caleb goes, yo, yo, but I remember there was a promise. I remember God promised this. I remember that there, there was something written down about this land. And Caleb goes to the promises of God. And that's firstly what helps him to think differently we have promises Matthew 6 verse 26 Jesus he speaks he says hey look at the birds they don't plant or harvest or store food in their barns your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you more valuable to him than they are it's a promise of provision Jesus gives us we've got to know our promises Psalm 37 verse 25 says once I was young now I'm old yet I've never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. It's another promise. Church, can I ask you the question today? Whose press are you reading? Are you reading News 24's press? Are you reading all the news apps, the, the newspapers? Whose words are you taking to heart? Are, are the words of a journalist striking fear into your heart? Or are God's promises the thing that you live by? Are you going to the word of God? Or are you going to the words of a journalist or a politician or a business person? You see, you and I, we can anchor our thoughts. We should, we must anchor our thoughts in the promises of God and not in the words of man. 
How do we do that? I want to suggest to you that memorizing scripture, scripture memorization becomes scripture assimilation. Let me say that again. Scripture memorization becomes scripture assimilation. In other words, what we, when we read God's word, we meditate on it, then we remember it or memorize it, it then becomes part of us. And so like Caleb, when there's a moment of challenge, something within Caleb wells up inside of him where he's able to look at the promises of God because they're so deeply embedded in his life and he doesn't look at the fear factor. You see, when we have memorized Scripture, when it has become a part of us, when it's been assimilated into us, in moments of challenge, it just wells up from a deep place within us. The second reason why Caleb could think differently, firstly, he believed the promises God knew them, but secondly, he counted on the presence of God. So it wasn't simply that he lived with the promises of God, it was that he counted on the presence of God. Look with me in Numbers chapter 14. It says, do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless. Pray to us. They have no protection. But the Lord is with us. That's a key phrase. The Lord is with us. So don't be afraid of them. Caleb knew he could count on the Lord is with us. He could count on the presence of God. He had his thoughts anchored on two things. The promises of God and secondly, the presence of God. He knew that God was faithful from the promises of God and he knew that he could count on the presence of God. He is with us. One way for us to step into the presence of God and for it to become more meaningful in our lives is a simple little prayer called the prayer of examen. E-X-A-M-E-N. The prayer of examen. It's where we take a few moments at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or both and we just simply sit quietly the presence of God and we ask the Holy Spirit to point out to anything in our lives that he wants to speak into we examine ourselves how is our heart how is our speech how is what we said how is what we thought and when we do so the Holy Spirit brings to our minds not only the promises of God but the presence of God becomes real and tangible to us and so church because Caleb thought differently because he thought differently the second thing in his life was that he spoke differently so Caleb thinks differently and because he thought differently because he had anchored his thoughts in the promises of God and he trusted in the presence of God because he thought differently now he spoke differently it takes a different mind for different speech Luke 6 45 Jesus reminds us that what we say flows from what's in our heart so have a look here at Caleb in Numbers 13. It says, Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take that land. He said, we can certainly conquer it. Do you notice how his words are so different to the other 10 spies? Whereas the culture spoke words of fear, the, the 10 spies spoke words of fear. Caleb spoke words of faith. And these were not empty words. These were not optimistic words. These were words that were anchored in his thoughts. You see, when you have the promises of God and you know he's faithful, and when we have the presence of God, we know he's with us, we think differently, and so we can speak differently. And our speech is authentic. It comes from a, a different space within us because our mind has been renewed. Our mind has come to terms with the promises and the presence of God, and so we speak differently. You see, Caleb knew that there would be voices that needed to quieten down. You know, voices of negativity, 
Numbers 13, we see how Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. He had to quiet it. And he said, let's go and take the land. But he had to try and quieten the voices of the culture. I'm sure for you, as there is for me, there are voices that I need to quieten down. It's a noisy world, isn't it? It's voices on social media, uninformed opinion. It's voices by those who are fearful. There's those... Voices that want to sell newspapers and sell their apps. If we're not careful, they will transfer their voice into our hearts. I had to delete some news apps from my phone. No kidding. I had to genuinely get rid of them. Perhaps you do too. Perhaps you have to leave a couple of WhatsApp groups. Really, I mean it. Perhaps you have to leave a couple of WhatsApp groups. This is not living in denial. This is simply deciding that you and I... We need a balanced diet of information coming into our mind. The media and uninformed people, anybody can have an opinion these days on social media, that should not determine our thinking. Remember this, I love this quote. It says, words are seeds that do more than blow around. They land in our hearts and not the ground. Be careful what you plant and be careful what you say. You might have to eat what you planted one day. I think that kind of summarizes Caleb's life, doesn't it? Caleb was happy to be the minority voice. Guess what? I am too. And so the result of thinking differently was now that he spoke differently. And the result of him speaking differently was that he ended up living differently. The scripture gives us some fantastic insight into how he lived differently to the culture. How did he do so? Well, he lived his life in two ways. Serving God wholeheartedly. We see that in Numbers 14. It says this, because my servant Caleb has got a different spirit, and because he follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. So Caleb lived his life wholeheartedly. Secondly, he lived his life generously. Caleb gave his daughter, once she was even married, I mean, she was at the house. At, uh, I mean, the labola had been paid. Uh, she was living with her husband. And she comes to him and says, Dad, I need, I need some water. I need some springs. And he, and he gives her both the upper and the lower springs. I mean, Caleb wasn't a guy who thought, oh, my daughter's at the house. That's the end of what she's ever going to get from me. No, no, he lived differently. He lived generously. Caleb lived differently. He served God, God wholeheartedly. And he lived his life generously. What a fantastic vision for life. To serve God wholeheartedly. And to live life generously. How does that sound for you as a vision for your life? To serve God wholeheartedly. And to live life generously. Church, people's church, in this time, let's look for ways to serve God wholeheartedly and to live generously. Let's look to serve the vulnerable. Let's look to serve the lonely. Those that are on the margins of our society. Let's do some grocery shopping for the elderly people that we might know. Drop it off and let them know without even coming into contact with them if COVID is a thing for them. Let's serve our families well, husbands and wives. Let's serve each other. Let's teach our kids to serve. Parents, let's disciple our children. Let's disciple them wholeheartedly. Let's serve God wholeheartedly by sowing and investing financially into the life of your local church. By serving as a volunteer. Use your gifts. You know, as we head back to church 
There's so many people, so many Christians, I think run the risk of getting lazy, watching church online on Sunday with a coffee and a muffin in their PJs, having a pajama party till midday. And now the church is starting to go back. People are going, oh, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm up to get up early anymore. Well, remember Jesus lived his life serving. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and to live his life serving other people. Christ served us by dying for us on the cross. Christ served his disciples by washing their feet. The only way that you and I follow Jesus into living the life that he lived is by serving, by using our gifts. Can I encourage you? Get back to church. Get back serving. Get out of your jammies. Wake up with a spring in your step. Set your alarm clock nice and early. Get your kids up. Get them prepared. Prepare your hearts during the week. Prepare your family on the weekend. We are heading back to church because there's nowhere else we'd rather be than in the room in an atmosphere of faith and in an atmosphere of worship. Remember, we don't go to church. We are the church. And that's what people who are built to last do. That's what the Caleb's of this generation do. Their impact, the impact of their lives outlives them. And their stories will be told long after they're gone, just like we're reading about Caleb's story thousands of years after his life. Church, your life, it's like a coin. You can spend it any way you want, but you can only spend it once. Make sure you invest it don't waste it. Invest it into something that matters to you and matters for eternity. That's a quote by Tony Evans. I love it. When a big wave like COVID hits, all of us, we've got a choice. Do we get out of the ocean, sit on the sidelines and think it's over? We, we can be like Israel, who did that effectively. They go, that's a big land with big people, big walls, big giants. It's game over for us. Or we can decide... I'm staying in the game. I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to rest. I'm going to recover from the knock. And I'm going to get back out there because I'm built to last. And so we can take our cue from Caleb. And we can say, yes, the walls, the people are big. The obstacles are big. But so is my faith. So is my God. And I am built to last. And last I will. How do we do it? The way Caleb did. Caleb thought differently spoke differently, lived differently. He thought differently by anchoring his thoughts in the promises of God. God is faithful and he trusted in the presence of his God. He is with us. Because of that, what was inside of him overflowed and he spoke differently with a voice of faith, with a voice of encouragement. He was a minority voice in a culture of negativity. He was a voice above the crowd. I want to live like that. And so Caleb thought differently, spoke differently, and thirdly, lived differently. Lived his life serving God wholeheartedly. Lived his life by being generous. And here's the thing. Here's where we're going to land it today. 45 years later, after everyone in his generation had died out, except Joshua. I mean, it's just Caleb and Joshua left. Guess what, church? He got his land. Why? Because he was built to last. So church, as we wrap up today, I want to speak to two groups of people. The first group of people is for those of us who have already made a decision to follow Jesus. I guess my call to you at this time, my word of encouragement and challenge to you at this time, is that God called you. Uh, 
you made a decision to follow Jesus for a reason. And that is for the purpose of doing something on this world, on this earth, in this world, with your one and only life for God. You, you first decided to follow Jesus because you looked at his life and you thought, I want to live like that. Not only did he cleanse me from all of my sin, but he also wrote a new story with my life. My call to you, my encouragement to you, is that you are called to faith in God because it is a faith that lasts, authored and perfected by a Savior that lasts. And you were called out of darkness into light for the purpose of doing something incredible for God, doing something that's built to last. Can I encourage you to renew your faith today? Can I encourage you to recommit your life to Christ this Easter? Can I encourage you to say to him today, Jesus, here I am. Would you take my one and only life? Would you use it again? Would you call me afresh? Would you commission me afresh? Would you give me something to do for your purposes? That starts with me recommitting myself to your local church. I realize I am not somebody who goes to church. I am the church. And I'm going to start this journey of recommitment, of re-emerging out of the season with a firm determination to serve your church. Serve it with my time, my talents, and my treasure. Serve it with my hands and my feet. Serve it with my money. Serve it with my mind. Serve it with my gifts. Serve it with everything I've got because Jesus, your church, is God's plan A for the redemption of our broken planet. The second group of people that I want to talk to today, maybe you're watching and this is you. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus yet. Jesus Christ is the greatest life that ever lived. Not only is he the greatest human being that ever lived, he's so much more than that. He is all the fullness and all the greatness and all the wonder and all the splendor of God wrapped up in flesh. And he came to earth died a sinner's death, died a, a death that was reserved for the worst of sinners, yet he was without sin. Why? Why did he go through that? Why did God resurrect him three days later? So that anyone who puts their faith and their hope in him, who decides to look at his life and to follow his life, to, to do what he did, to place their faith and their hope for the eternal future in him. Realizing we could never get to heaven by ourselves. Also realizing we could never live a life that's built to last here on earth by ourselves in our own strength. There's one life and one life only that makes it possible and that is the life of Jesus Christ. And today my call to you, my invitation to you, is to place your faith and your hope in him. And as you do so, he will not only erase anything destructive in your past, but he will begin to write a new story with your life. And guess what? The headline of the new story will be built to last. Your life will take on a significance and a purpose you never dreamed possible. And one day when you exit this life, 
you'll move seamlessly from a life here on earth into his presence where you would live with him for eternity. He is the greatest life that ever lived and he did that for you and for me. So today, if you want to follow Jesus, it would be my privilege to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for this invitation today. Right where I'm sitting in this moment, wherever I'm watching, I feel and sense your, your tug on my heart. I want to respond to that today. I want to open my life to you. Invite you into my life, Jesus. And I want to make a decision to follow you. That means I'm going to learn to be with you in your word. I'm going to learn to do what you did. And I'm going to become more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you responded today, there'll be a number on the screen. And I want to encourage you just to text that number. And one of the team would love to respond to you and help you with your first and next steps in your faith journey. People's Church, as you continue in your Easter conference, as you continue in this Easter moment, we pray God's richest blessings on each and every one of you. Pastor Candice and I, the national leadership team of the Assemblies of God, and all of us here at Thrive Church, we are cheering you on. May you become a people built to last. God bless you. What a great and lovely message from Pastor Byron. I pray and hope that like Caleb, we'll also know the promises of God and count on the presence of God. And now for session two, we're going to receive ministry from Mrs. Palesa Mohodi, where she takes us through how Jesus went through intense grief in the Garden of Gethsemane and just reminding us of how much Jesus understands pain. We hope that this will minister into your life. And after that, we will end the service with communion and that will be delivered by Mrs. Busi Makwarela. Enjoy. Good day, family. For the sake of those who don't know me, my name is Palesa. Thank you for having me today. I'm super excited to be with you during this Easter conference. I know and trust that the Lord will do something in our hearts through it. I'm particularly grateful to God that he has given us another opportunity at life. I hope we will use it wisely to love him and others. As I was desperately praying to God, asking him what he wanted me to share with you today, God laid on my heart the title, Crushed Unto Death. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for all that you do for us. We thank you that you are our God, that you chose us and you called us to yourself. Lord, we thank you so much because you are a wonderful God and you are faithful to us. Lord, as we listen to your word this morning, Lord, I just pray that you open our hearts to receive it. That, Lord, you open our spiritual ears to hear it, O oh God. And most of all, that you empower us 
empower us to work on it, oh God, to act on it, oh God. Lord, I just pray that you may work in us this morning, oh God. I thank you so much in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Up until today, I had never realized that Easter had so many facets to it. My initial thinking about it was that I obviously needed to address the issue of God's love for us that led him to giving us his only son to die for our sins on the cross. And most importantly, I needed to talk about the resurrection of Christ, which is the foundation of the Christian faith. We do know that had Christ not resurrected, we wouldn't have Christianity, right? Yes, Christianity is based on the fact that we died with Christ and we resurrected with him. Hence, we are promised eternal life. Just to further assist those who may not be familiar with the Christian faith, I will give a brief summary. So in the beginning, God created man who was placed in a garden called Eden to live happily and to freely enjoy communion with God. The placement in the garden had only one restriction, which was that man should not eat of the tree of life. However, Satan, who is also known as the devil, tempted man into disobeying God and eating of the tree. This disobedience to God is what is commonly termed the great fall. For the first time, man fell into sin. As a result, man was separated from God and couldn't freely commune with him any longer. The great fall led to all humanity inheriting a sinful nature and the burden of being born already detached from God. In order for communion with God to be restored, people needed to slaughter unblemished lambs to make up for committed sins, meaning every time man sinned, a sacrifice needed to be made. So God, as a permanent solution, gave his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die once and for all on the cross. He had to die so as to reconcile us back to God. This was God's plan from the very beginning. We find that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You see, without Jesus' death and resurrection we wouldn't have been reconciled to God because the sin men con committed in the Garden of Eden made us unworthy. We fell short of God's glorious standard. Please hear me well. I'm saying the sin made us unworthy of meeting God's glorious standard, not that it made us worthless. These two are very different things which can easily be confused Unworthy means failing to live up to requirements, whilst worthlessness means being of no value. Let me give an example for further clarity. Let's say we needed to write a, a test. If we don't study for that test, we will fail to live up to its requirements. As such, we will be unworthy of passing, right? But at the same time, us not studying does not mean we are of no value. It doesn't mean we are worthless. Am I correct? Of course. Unworthy speaks to merit based on actions, 
whilst worthlessness speaks to intrinsic value based on identity. So before God, we are unworthy, but not worthless. Del Fincher puts it perfectly when he says, Jesus did not come for the worthless. He came for the unworthy. He came for those who are valuable. His coming did not make us valuable. Isn't it comforting to know we were already valuable to God when Christ came? That is the main reason he came anyway. So in a nutshell, what we are saying is that Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brought a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. This you can find in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Now that the foundation has been laid, I would like us to zoom into the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ through suffering. Let's read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 44. The title of the passage is Jesus Prays in Gethsemane. The reason I would like us to read this portion of scripture is because I believe the physical sacrifice Jesus made began here, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Scholars describe the Garden of Gethsemane as a place where our Lord Jesus Christ went through intense grief. They say the amount of sorrow he experienced there is just indescribable. It is believed no words can ever fully capture it. Let's read verse 36. It reads, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. And he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. In this text, the Lord Jesus Christ communicates such deep grief. He terms what he is experiencing as grief to the point of death. I can't even imagine how that feels. Because the sound of it is just so intense. In the Amplified Bible, it says, My soul is deeply grieved, so that I am almost dying of sorrow. Can we even picture that? When someone says, I'm almost dying of something, it means whatever they are going through is so intense that they feel they are hanging by a thread. And just a little more of it, might just lead to complete collapse, or even death. That is surely a painful experience. The Lord Jesus Christ was on the verge of some or other form of human collapse. He knew very well. He was at the very verge of his humanly endurance. The sorrow he was experiencing was a butchering sorrow. A sorrow that no one can go through and survive. It was an anguishing experience. Luke in chapter 22 verse 44 says, Jesus prayed more fervently. 
And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. I know some of us, when thinking of this, we could be tempted to think it was figurative. No, it wasn't. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, sweated blood. This is an existing condition called hematohydrosis, which is said to occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. We can appreciate that since the Lord Jesus Christ was going through extreme anguish. In my view, his suffering began here, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This occasion could easily be one of the most painful, most draining, and most vulnerable times our Lord Jesus Christ experienced. A painful experience to a point of sweat and blood, draining to a point of being strengthened by an angel, and vulnerable to a point of fervent prayer. This goes to prove that indeed he was human. Let's continue to verse 39. It reads, He went on a little further and bowed with his face on to the ground praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This to me sounds like a call of desperation or even of surrender. The Lord Jesus pleads with his father to take the suffering away. As a parent, this plea cuts deep. When a child says this to a parent, it can only mean he has reached a point of utter desperation. And if we were to be honest, it seems like the Lord Jesus' human self was at the point of giving in. His flesh was done. Well, it, it sounds like he, he would have really appreciated, if possible, for his father to let this cup of suffering pass him by. However, after the plea, we see sheer obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ starts his sentence with yet. Why is this significant? You see, when a sentence begins with yet, it means whatever idea is going to be expressed is contrary to the earlier sentence. In essence, what the Lord Jesus Christ is communicating is, yes, I'm going through intense grief. And I would most definitely, if possible, appreciate the suffering to be removed from me. However, I understand that my father's will takes precedence over my own. This is testament that the Lord Jesus Christ was not a help helpless victim, but rather an obedient son to his father's will. Let's continue to verse 40. It reads, Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. At this point, I'm really getting annoyed with Peter and the crew. And I'm thinking, really, couldn't you pray at least once? But who am I to judge? 
when the Lord Jesus Christ was so gentle with them. In this part of scripture, the Lord Jesus makes a clear distinction between how his spirit feels and how his body feels. It's actually phenomenal to observe how he distinctly draws the line. Let's continue to verse 42. It reads, Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. When the Lord Jesus went to pray for the second time, he was no longer praying for the cup to be taken away. His prayer was more like a reassurance of his commitment to the Father's will. He says to his Father, If the cup can't be taken away unless I drink it, then let your will be done. At this point, he is in complete acceptance and surrender to the will of his Father, which is a journey of immense suffering. It is interesting to note that the Lord Jesus Christ's prayer to his Father almost shifts from, please consider taking the suffering away, to, it's okay, I will go through the suffering, if that's what you will. Let's just bring it home with these three points. Point number one, the Lord Jesus Christ understands pain. I don't know where you might be in your life today. I don't even know what you are going through. You could be at a place where you feel the suffering is just too much. And you might as well be sweating blood like Jesus. You could also be feeling like if things continue the way they are, you will die. That you won't make it. You might have even prayed passionately to God about your pain. Yet it doesn't seem to get easier. I wish I could tell you that God will take it away. I wish I could tell you when, but I can't. If there's anything that you must know, it's that Jesus understands. He knows very well what you're going through. He himself went through deep anguish for us to be here today, for us to have a relationship with God. He knows how it feels to be at the very end of yourself. And he is the best person to talk to during times of suffering. Jesus himself encourages us to draw near to him. In Matthew chapter 11 verse 28, he gives us an open invitation to come to him. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. I trust him, church, and I know you do too. He will give us much needed rest. Point number two, we must always surrender to the will of our Father. When we go through suffering, we must always remember to allow the will of the Father to prevail. Please hear me correctly. I'm not saying the will of the Father is to bring us pain. No. 
What I'm saying is that if in fulfilling the will of the Father, we must go through pain, then we must be ready to say, so be it. Let your will be done. We are permitted to communicate our pains and preferences just like the, our Lord Jesus Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at the end of it all, we need to allow the will of the Father to be done in our lives. I understand it can sometimes be difficult, but who says the opposite isn't difficult too? My prayer is that we be in complete obedience to the Father despite the anguish we face. Point number three, pray. We need to pray, family. We need to pray until we feel empowered to face our suffering. The Lord Jesus prayed three times. And his second prayer was more an acceptance prayer than a prayer for his father to remove the suffering he was facing and about to face. This just shows that prayer does something in us. As I conclude, I'd like us to read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. It reads, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Suffering can be a teacher of obedience. So today I'd like us to remember that God understands pain. That we must surrender to the will of the Father. That we must pray and we will come out victorious. Just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for for giving us this time, Lord. Thank you for your people, oh God. Lord, I just want to pray that you may minister to each and every heart this morning, oh God, that you may reach out to our pain, almighty Jesus. Lord, I pray that we may be empowered to face our suffering, oh God, and most importantly, that your will be done in our lives. Lord, we trust in you, and we know when we draw near to you, oh God, the burden will be lifted. Lord, you say we must draw near. God, we are, dear, we are drawing near to you, oh Lord Jesus. Lord, we're giving you our suffering. We're giving you our burden that you so died for on the cross. Lord, we thank you. We give you honor and glory, oh Lord Jesus. May your will be done in our lives today and forevermore. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. And if you heard this message and would like to have a relationship with this Savior who understands pain and gives us rest, then simply follow Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10, which read, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. If you made that decision, we are excited for you. would like to encourage you to connect with us on the Church Center app. Or alternatively, connect with a church near you for further spiritual support. May our good Lord bless you. 
we love you. Hello family, it's good to be with you once again. Welcome to the Good News Conference 2021. It's amazing that we are able to do this despite all the challenges we've been through, all the changes we've had to learn to live with. And we do trust that you are well. The good news of Christ never expires. His coming, his death and his resurrection will always be fresh because that is the core of who we are and what we believe. As I thought about communion, I thought sometimes good news gets exciting the first time you hear it, but over time it loses its power to excite us. And I wonder why. I find that the message of the cross no longer moves many old Christians. We have become too familiar with this truth and the reason for our familiarity is that we have forgotten the benefits or the blessings rather we enjoy because of the cross. During the Good News Conference, I would like to read a passage of scripture from Isaiah 53 from verse 1. It says, "For he, sorry, it says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the part where I would like to remind us of our benefits or the benefits of him coming to the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. I was just thinking of all of this and I thought, how many times have we just thought that healing is not as real as it used to be before, you know? Or peace is not something that we can still enjoy. And yet these are things that the cross of Christ brought to us. Also, David almost prophetically said in Psalm 103 from verse 1 to 5, it reads as follows. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. He lists all these benefits, such as forgiveness. He lists benefits such as healing from diseases. He lists all these benefits such as redemption from destruction. And it says he satisfies our mouth with good things and our strength and our youth is renewed. Finally, Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life 
and have it in abundance. You know, abundance means fullness. It means excess, no shortage, a completion of things. This is all the encompassing wholeness that Isaiah speaks about. His, his stripes bring us healing. So dear brothers and sisters, as we partake in communion, holy communion, let us remember that the cross is our guarantee of life here and life eternal. The cross and the holy communion is a gift that Jesus gave us as a permanent reminder that we are now reconciled to God and we have all that we need in him. Today, let us unwrap this precious gift of life laid down by the Savior himself. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we get to unwrap your gift every single day because you have reconciled us to yourself. Thank you that we are reminded that your cross was not in vain. Thank you that you are reminded that the cross of Jesus was not a show. It was something that would live eternally in our hearts, something that we can hold on to eternally, something that we can use as a guarantee. It is our guarantee of healing. It is our guarantee of redemption. It is our guarantee of provision. And Father, we thank you because you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. We want to say thank you, Lord, for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us and we cannot wait to see you again tomorrow for day two of our conference. Enjoy the rest of the evening and see you tomorrow.